John chapter 18, beginning at verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. <clears throat> but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. <clears throat> you aren't one of the, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. It doesn't take long in life before all of us get to learn the truth that everything and everyone ultimately disappoints in some way. Whether it's the shiny thing that you get when you're a child and you think it's the best thing ever for about a day or so, and then you realize it's not quite that good, it doesn't do everything you want it to do, it breaks in some way, or whether it's more sadly perhaps in relationships and friendships. And initially you think someone is such a great person, and in lots of ways they are, but eventually you find there's something that's not quite right. There are things that disappoint. One of the most amazing things about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he never disappoints. In fact, it works in the opposite direction because the more you get to know about the Lord Jesus and the more you learn about him in his person and his character and all that he is, the more you see his greatness and the more you see his glory. He is greater than we think. We might say that, well, the bubble always bursts with things and people, but the bubble never bursts with the Lord Jesus Christ. And hasn't that been our experience as we've worked through John's gospel as a church family over the last year or two? As we have seen more of Jesus week after week after week, we have seen more of the greatness and perfection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is. Last week, we, we looked at the arrest of Jesus there in the garden where his opponents came to arrest him and take him away. And there we saw him, see, we, we saw him showing courage and power and care for his own followers. Even he was taken away to be tried and then killed there by his enemies. And this week, we move on past the arrest to the beginning of Jesus' interrogation before the high priest. And we're going to look together at Jesus' interaction with the high priests in this passage. And then we're also going to look at one of Jesus' followers. James prayed about it. We heard about it in the reading. Peter, who is outside, and see what happens to Peter there as he follows the Lord at a distance. And in this passage this morning, the greatness of Jesus is going to be highlighted for us, brought into even greater focus through contrast between the high priests and the Lord Jesus, and then contrast between Peter and the Lord Jesus. And in both of those comparisons, we will see all that is wicked and wrong about those people serves to highlight all that is good, all that is pure, all that is lovely about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn first and consider the corrupt priest. My first point, I haven't got any slides this morning, my first point, two words, corrupt priests. The first thing that stands out in this passage is the utter corruption of the high priests. If you have a Bible, uh, look down there in verse 13, and we see that Jesus, having been arrested, is taken by the soldiers to Annas. Now, now we might be confused because here Annas is referred to as the high priest, and later we read that Caiaphas was the high priest. But when we learn a bit more about Annas, it becomes clear why he would be the first to see Jesus and why he is indeed still referred to as the high priest. Because Annas here is a master manipulator of a corrupt priesthood. He is at the head of a a corrupt priesthood who are manipulating people and the temple system for their own ends. So Annas, the first one mentioned, was high priest from AD 6 to 15. But anyone who had served as high priest could still be referred to the title high priest. So it's a bit like uh, what happens when a president of the United States retires. You can always refer to them as the president, even after they have left office, whether it was four or eight years. So that's why Annas has this title, and Caiaphas has it as well. But the Jewish law required that the high priest would serve in that office for life. But the Jews are no longer the highest authority in Jerusalem and in Israel. The Romans have come, and they are in control, and they have a policy of changing the high priest regularly. They do that because they don't want any man to build up his power and influence by remaining in office for too long. So they change the high priest regularly. But that wasn't a problem to Annas, because all he did was appoint his five sons consecutively to the office of high priest after him. And now as we come to the events of Jesus' arrest and interrogation at this point, well, now he's on to his son-in-law, and it's Caiaphas. 
So what Annas has done is he has turned the priesthood into a family business and one that is built upon corruption. Where's the corruption? Well, well, they allowed a market to exist within the temple courts where people would come there to buy approved sacrificial animals, but they bought them at a vastly inflated price. There at the market as well, when you came to temple, you needed to pay your temple taxes, and you needed to pay it in special temple coinage. And so, rather conveniently, they had their own exchanges there available in the marketplace, where you could exchange your own currency to the approved temple coinage, but only at an extortionate exchange rate. This market was so notorious that it was known as the Bazaars of Annas. It had a name. So what they'd done is they had turned the temple system into a money-making machine that was built upon corruption. And the Lord Jesus had rejected that. We read in John chapter 2, the second chapter of John, of how Jesus comes into the temple. And what does he do? He turns over the market stalls. He drives out the market sellers with a whip. And because Jesus did that, they see him as a threat. And so they have already decided what they are going to do with the Lord Jesus well before his interrogation and trial begins. That's what John reminds us of there in verse 14. He takes us back and he says, Caiaphas had previously addressed the Jewish leaders and advised them it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, reading that in verse 14 makes us go back to events in John chapter 11, where we learned of how the Jewish leaders hatched their plan to do away with Jesus because they had seen how he was a threat to their system and the way in which they were making money and controlling the people in that sense. And so in John chapter 11, verse 48, we read their concern had been, if we let him, that's Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now here they are the personal pronouns, our temple, our nation. Is it their temple? No, it's God's temple. Is it their nation? No, it is God's people. So they're concerned about their temple and their nation because this is a system they have established in the temple to exploit God's people who are used to generate a tidy income for this family. And so they see Jesus and the following he is gathering as a great threat. And so back in John chapter 11, they resolve. So from that day, verse 53, they plotted to take his life. What's the point? The point is this, and that's what's being highlighted for us in verse 14. That as we begin Jesus' interrogation, as they examine him to see if he has done something worthy of death, what have they already decided? That he must die. It's a foregone conclusion. They're not interested in a fair trial. They're not interested in a just outcome. In fact, well, you wouldn't really call this a legal process at all, would you? What would you call it? Well, it's a murder plot, isn't it? It's a murder plot because they want him dead. 
The outcome is already decided, and now they just need to manipulate the process to achieve their desired end. And there is so much about what happens to Jesus in this interrogation that just doesn't look right. Notice that Jesus is tried at night. We know that trials where someone was going to be sentenced possibly to death could only begin in the morning and continue through the day. They were never allowed to begin at night. But they begin the interrogation at night. Notice also that they try to use Jesus' words to condemn him. Now, from what we know of the principles of Jewish law from later writings is that that wasn't allowed. So we assume that was a principle here, that the defendant needed to be tried based upon not their testimony, but the testimony of two other witnesses who brought evidence against them. And if you look down in verse 21, that seems to be what Jesus is saying because he is insisting that they go and find witnesses because he wants a fair trial. But also notice that they apply pressure through violence. Verse 22, they allow one of their own officials to slap the Lord Jesus there in the face whilst he is answering questions. The first of many blows that will follow for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the key point in this is that they are doing everything they are doing because they're corrupt. Now let's not forget who they are. They are the high priests. They are the religious leaders of God's people. They are responsible for the God-given system of sacrifices. They're responsible for teaching God's truth to God's people. They should have been models of honesty and faithfulness and integrity. But instead, what are they? Well, they're a bunch of corrupt schemers. But Annas and Caiaphas are not the only high priests in this passage. Because there is one standing there, another high priest standing there, and who is it? We read of that, didn't we, in Hebrews chapter 8, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest. And in contrast to the high priest in this passage, Jesus, in his actions and words, demonstrates that he is the true high priest. Because Christ is open. Christ is honest. Christ cares for his people. Let's see the details. Notice that he is not a schemer who operates deviously in the shadows. Look at verse 20, how he speaks. Jesus says, verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. What's he saying? He's saying, my teaching has always been public, not secret. I'm not a schemer. Now, this isn't denying that Jesus taught his disciples in private. We know that he did many times. But what it means is there is no inconsistency between what he taught in private and what he taught in public. Everything he taught in public and in private was consistent. Perhaps what was private is built upon what's public, but it's all consistent through and through. He isn't two-faced, speaking one thing to the crowds and then something else very different to his followers when he has them on his own. So he's not a schemer, but also his words are always good and truthful. And that's what he says in his defense when the official hits him. How does he respond in verse 23 to that 
that physical attack. He says, verse 23, show me something I have said that was wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? What's he saying? He's saying, I always speak truth, even in the challenge that he brings there to the high priest. And then notice also the way in which he cares for his people, just like the high priest should. The people are not an income source to exploit. They are a flock to guide and protect. And in a similar way to as we saw last week, Jesus cares for his own. Look at verse 19. That There as we have the summary of the questions the high priests are throwing at Jesus... What is the summary that he is questioned about his disciples and his teaching? But notice that in Jesus' responses there in 20, 21, and 23, he only responds about his teaching. He says nothing about his disciples. Why? Because he wants to focus on himself, and he's going to protect and care for his own, defending them. So what we are seeing here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true high priest. He is the high priest stood there. Now why does that matter? Well, it matters for this reason, that the purpose of the high priest was to represent the people to God and God to the people. That because of their sin... People couldn't come themselves before God, and so they needed a mediator, someone who would stand between them and the Lord God because of their sin. But if you're going to come to a high priest, that high priest needs to be someone who you could come before with fear and confidence because of their character and who they are. Now ask yourself this question. Would you have wanted to have come to Annas or Caiaphas for help when they were high priests? I wouldn't. I'd go anywhere but them. (laughs) Because they're just going to exploit you for personal benefits. But friends, see the contrast. Because it is so different with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is open and honest and caring. All characteristics that we're drawn towards, aren't we? And this means that as we draw near to him through prayer, pouring out our hearts to him, we can bring our burdens and our sins before him, perhaps things that we feel we couldn't share with anyone, but we can bring them to Jesus. How? Because we know his character is good. Because we know that he will always care for us. And so in our need, we draw near to him and we find great help. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the true high priests. We've seen corrupt priests, but we see the true high priest, which makes us want to draw near to him, to come to him because of all that he is. So we've seen corrupt priests. Now we turn to faithless followers. Our second point, faithless followers. Our passage is very deliberately structured with four scenes where Jesus and Peter are both subject to interrogation. And the focus moves back and forth between Jesus and Peter. So it goes Jesus first, then Peter, 
Then we jump back inside the house and, and we have Jesus being interrogated again. And then we jump back outside and we have Peter being interrogated again. So it's kind of like a scenes of a, a play or moving back and forth between the two. So there's a very, very deliberate contrast between Jesus and his follower. Now, why is that? Why not just follow Jesus inside, the whole of it, and then jump outside and follow Peter outside? Why jump back and forth? Well, it's, well, it's so that we might see a contrast between Jesus and his follower. Because in Jesus, we see unchanging, determined faithfulness. But in Peter, what do we see? Well, we see fickle faithlessness. Let's start this time with the Lord Jesus and see what happens there. Because he is questioned inside the house of Annas under real pressure. Now, now we need to see the pressure here. He has stood before very important people in Israel. He is there knowing that his answers will have big implications. Because why? Well, his life is on the line, isn't it? It's a hugely pressurized situation. And how easy it would have been for him to have caved in, to perhaps have withdrawn what he has said, maybe to have fallen on his knees and begged for his own life, and maybe they would have changed their minds about what they wanted to do to him. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't. He shows determined faithfulness because he stands up to his opponents and denies nothing except their lies about him. He won't sin against God because he won't abandon the mission which the Father has given to him. And he won't sin against others by changing course and failing to keep what had been his stated public commitment to go and die to rescue his people. So he won't sin against God by, by turning against the plan of the Father, and he will not sin against people by failing to keep his word. He is steadfast. He is faithful. But Peter's denials stand in stark contrast to Jesus' character. Because notice that Peter, although under pressure... It's not the same kind of pressure, is it? The first denial of Peter happens in verses 15 through to 18. And it happens as he comes into the courtyard of the house where Jesus is being interrogated by Annas. And he's admitted by a servant girl who is in charge of the door. He's allowed in because another one of the disciples, probably John, has already been given access because in some way he is known to the high priest. And so John comes and brings Peter inside. She asks him if he is a follower of Jesus, the servant girl. And it doesn't seem that she asks it to secure entry. It's almost a throwaway comment as he enters. Maybe she wonders about the connection between Jesus, John, and Peter. But it's hardly a probing challenge, is it? What does she say? Look at verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? But yet her words bring forth from Peter's lips the first denial. I am not, he says. The coldness of the night 
is mirrored in the coldness of Peter's heart towards the Lord. And he is so fickle and lacking in faithful commitment to Christ that where does he choose to stand in the courtyard? He stands around a fire alongside the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who had just arrested him and brought him to the high priest. Shocking, isn't it, when you think of that? The second and third denials come more quickly in verses 25 to 27. Peter's there standing around the fire. The officials ask him almost this very same question the servant girl says, aren't you one of his disciples too? Sorry, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? But again, for a second time, Peter denies it with the same three words, I am not. Isn't it interesting that Peter uses the same three words twice, I am not, to deny the Lord Jesus, abandon him and save his own skin? And doesn't that make us think of Jesus using the same phrase twice there when he was arrested in the garden, when he didn't run away from the threat? He stepped forward and faced it, knowing what it would mean for him with those same phrase, very similar, I am. Jesus used those few words to sacrifice himself. Peter uses a few words repeated to save himself. And then we come to the final denial in verses 26 and 27, where Peter is recognized as one of those who had cut off Malchus' ear, and again Peter denies it. And then we read, at that moment, immediately the cock began to crow. That detail is important because it shows us that Jesus' words to Peter have come true. Those words back in John 13 where he told Peter that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed, and he did. Friends, see the contrast again with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus refused to sin against God or to sin against others. What does Peter do? Peter sins against God. How? Because he gives in to fears rather than trusting the Lord. And Peter sins against others because he fails to keep his own word having declared with great boldness that he would even die for the Lord Jesus. And under pressure, he doesn't keep that word. Living where we do in the country, I think we live in a very professionalized area of the world, don't we? Where so many of our interactions, well, they're very, very professional. And people are, well, skilled at hiding what is truly going on in their hearts, some of us. But we all know, don't we, that if you want to see someone's true character, what do you do? You look at them under pressure. And that's what happens for us here in this passage. For Peter, his faithless heart is revealed by the pressure of the three questions under his interrogation. For the high priests, well, their corrupt hearts are revealed by the pressure that comes to the challenge to their lucrative empire. Friends, both Peter and the high priests are here to act as mirrors to our own hearts. Because, of course, we look on in disapproval at Peter, but how often do we deny the Lord 
hundreds of little ways each day, and sometimes in some very big ways. And we look on in shock, rightly, at the corruption of the high priests. But how often do we choose to protect ourselves and our own little empires through sin and dishonesty each day? As the saying goes, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But what should they do? Well, once we've put down the stones, we should take up a mirror. And as we look in the mirror, God's word reveals our hearts. That's what we're seeing this morning. We should look in the mirror and see that each of us has a sinful heart, just like the characters here in this story. Just like every human being on planet Earth. But what hope then is there for people who are like these high priests, for people who are like Peter, for people who are like us? And friends, as we close, I want to say there is hope. There is great hope because here in this passage, we see the solution. We've looked at the corrupt priests. We have looked at the faithless followers. But now we come, thirdly and finally and briefly, to a perfect sacrifice. Let's jump back to Caiaphas' words in verse 14, which are amazingly prophetic, aren't they? (laughs) Because Caiaphas says there, it would be good, it would be good if one man were to die for the people. And in those words, he brings us almost to the centre of what Jesus came to do, doesn't he? Because what is he saying? He is saying, somebody needs to die. But of course, we know that the truth is much more than that that Jesus has not just come to die for the reasons that Caiaphas wants him to die. He has come to die for something so much greater than that. He has come to die to be our sacrifice in our place. So Caiaphas, in speaking those words, is, is misunderstanding what Jesus came to do because he just thinks Jesus is going to need to die to protect his position and keep things calm so the Romans are happy. But the Lord Jesus' death will do something so much better than that. He will be paying for the sins of all people who will believe in his name. People like Peter, people like these priests, people like us who are sinners through and through. And friends, because he will bear their sins as the perfect sacrifice by faith in his name... Anyone who looks to Christ will be able to know God now and into eternity. And so there's another problem with Caiaphas' words because he's not just misunderstood the nature of the sacrifice. He's also vastly underestimated what it will mean. He says it will be good if one man were to die. Now the word in the original means helpful or advantageous. It's better than that, isn't it? It is so much better than that. Because forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross by believing in his name, well, that's going to bring the gift of a clear conscience before the God of heaven. That's a wonderful thing to go to bed at night and put your head on the pillow and know I'm right with God. And that is the privilege of every Christian. And not just that, to know certainty of a place in heaven for all of eternity. And friends, that is 
if that is true, and it is true, there is no adjective in the English language that sufficiently captures the greatness of it. There isn't, is there? So here's the question. Is Jesus' death really able to do it? Because that's the crux of it all, isn't it? Our hearts are so dark, our sin runs so deep. But friends, that is why we need to see the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ here in this passage. Because just as he does again and again in John's Gospel, the perfection of Christ shines out like a bright light in the darkness of the actions of others. And that's what we're seeing, because as we see the perfection of Christ, we can know that his death is enough. Because if Jesus was a corrupt, faithless, shaky sinner, offering himself for our sins on the cross, we would have every reason to doubt that it was enough. Because he can't take our place if he has to bear his own sins personally. But he's not, is he? He's not. And that's why the focus is on Christ again and again and again as you work through John's Gospel, so that again and again we might see more and more of his perfection, so that we might know that his death is enough, enough to give us a clear conscience, enough to give us eternal life. And that's why we read in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9.14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself... What was the phrase? Unblemished to God. That's the point. Perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. And what will it mean? It will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. Several years ago, I was helping my brother to try and buy a used car. I found it on Autotrader, and we paid a mechanic who looked after our cars and leads to come and look at it with us. And we went on to see the car, and he looked around. It was a Volvo V70, and it was in great condition. The engine, well, it ran like it was new. The interior, though they had a young child, was spotless. I don't know how they did it, but it was really spotless. All the electrics worked. He played with everything, and it was all working perfectly. And having looked around the car for about 30 minutes, he could not find anything wrong with it. And he said, this is a great car, but I've got to find something that's wrong with it so you can try and use something to haggle down the price. Ten more minutes he looked around the car. By this point, the sellers were getting somewhat agitated. And we were a little bit, because we were realizing we might have to pay the asking price on this car. But he said, hold on a moment. I haven't checked the reversing sensors yet. He said, put it in reverse, which he did. And he put his ear down to each of the reversing sensors to see if he could hear the high-pitched, fast-clicking noise that indicates that I think an ultrasonic sensor is working. Four sensors. One of them was broken. He said, right, there you go. I'd fix that. Replace it the Volvo part for about £100. Go and try and haggle that off the price. And we did, I think, plus 50. And that was what we got. If you look at anything for long enough, or anyone for long enough, you'll find a defect. 
you'll find an imperfection. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. Because the more you look at him, the more you will be confronted, blown away by his utter greatness. And so you can know his, fr- his death is enough to forgive you and cleanse your conscience before God. And his death is enough to change you gradually through the work of his spirit. We do not have time. Our time is gone. But if we did, we would go to the end of John's gospel. And what would we see? We'd see Peter restored by the Lord Jesus. If we had time, we'd look at some of the early chapters in the book of Acts and we'd see Peter who turns from being a, a faithless, fickle follower to a man of great courage. He's a different man. If you want to read about it, do this afternoon. But here's the point. Peter shows us that we need to come to Christ by faith before our lives will change. As one writer puts it, Peter cannot follow Jesus until he is first trusted in Jesus' death for him. And so will you let me close with this thought, friends? Maybe there are some here today who are doing something similar Maybe you're trying to follow Christ and gain acceptance with God without first trusting in Christ's death for your salvation. It's impossible to do. You cannot do it. What are you hoping will be sufficient to pay for your sins instead of the Lord Jesus Christ? Your money, your good intentions, your actions, do you think they're going to be enough to cover your sin? After all that we've seen of our hearts in this passage, you need a sacrifice who can forgive your sins and you need a sacrifice that can change you, who can bring about inner heart change, which we can't do. And so, friends, I put it to you. Only Jesus can do this. Only Christ can bring about that change. So will you come to him today? Will you believe on him today? If you want to know more about him, I have just two copies of John's Gospel. And the first two people to have one who promise to read it can take it away. If you have questions, I'd love to speak further. But friends, don't let this opportunity pass. The Saviour is here. Will you lay down your doing and trust him by faith? to know life in his name.